this week on Dig Me Out. Losing my religion. Everybody hurts. What's a frequency can is better sweet me day sleeper. With your hosts, Jason Zia and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode. Thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com. That's digmeoutunion.com. Jay, I'd be remiss if I didn't do it for the fourth week in a row. Got to mention that Brainiac Transmissions After Zero DVD and Video On Demand is now available everywhere that you can demand video or dvds uh itunes amazon vimeo those types of sorts of places sorts of places our friend eric mahoney the director he took it out on the road last year he's got the dvd out just had the release party in brooklyn and there's 40 bonus minutes of material that are on the dvd and and the video on demand so like live performances and interviews Mm, very cool yeah lots of extra stuff which is always cool when you get that extra stuff on the uh, on the DVD releases, everybody likes the extra stuff. Everybody likes it. So you can go to brainiacfilm.com. You can visit their Facebook page. That's Brainiac Transmissions After Zero or After Z. If we were in Canada, <laughs> okay. But we are not. But we are not. Hey, speaking of Patreon, Jay, do you know what happened yeah. this week? Do you know what happened? We we got a new patron. We got a new patron. Welcome, Rudy Stowell, a new 1950 patron. Jay, that means he, that's the whole kit and caboodle. That's the T-shirt, the sticker. He votes in our all of our polls. He helps us pick our roundtables. He's going to have a 12-month pick coming up in uh, February of 2021. Maybe he'll vote for uh, Radiohead in the 90s. <laughs> like I would allow that to happen. <laughs> um. This episode, Jay, is our roundtable series called In the 90s. Thanks for uh, spoiling my introduction. And we've done these before. We've done Van Halen, Metallica, Duran Duran, Tom Petty. Basically, we take an artist that was really significant in the 80s, and in the case of Tom Petty, even in the 70s, and we look at how their career evolved throughout the 90s. When you take a band like Van Halen, who had a certain sound, you see how did they mesh with the alternative grunge indie sound of the 90s did they run into a brick wall did they try to evolve their sound what happened uh in the case of metallica you could argue that the band got even bigger than they were in the 80s this episode as voted on by our patrons such as uh rudy who just uh who joined us at the steering committee and board of directors level they selected REMJ, and this is one that's been in the it's been in the hopper for a while. Yeah, we we have um, not talked about REM very much, which is shocking for a '90s podcast. Right. So we have not done our job. Yeah, we failed miserably. Is what had <laughs> happened here. And so, just to give just a quick backstory before we get into our roundtable, um, they released. For one, two, three, four, five, six albums in six years in the eighties. That's crazy. Most there are bands yeah. that have not released six albums 
in their in their life in in the existence of a band, and they did six albums in six years: Murmur, Reckoning, Fables of the Reconstruction, Lifestories Pageant, Document, and Green between '83 and '88. That's nuts. Lots of singles on there. The one I love, obviously, is is the big one. Stand, you know that. You know this this was not a unknown band. By the time the 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 80s ended, this was a band that was on MTV that was getting videos played on MTV, not just during, just not just after midnight on Sunday on an Alternative Nation or 120 Minutes. Like they were a they were a daytime MTV band. They were played on the radio. So here's the interesting thing: album a year for six years, then they yep. take a three year break between 88 and 91. 91 is when Out of Time comes out, or two and a half years because it's November of. 88 to March of 91. So we're going to talk about that with our round table. We're going to start with Out of Time, work our way through the decade like we've done in the past, talk about the albums, the singles, what was going on with the band throughout the decade, and try to figure out, did this band survive the 90s? Or does this band get swallowed up and spit out and stomped on by the 90s like Van Halen? Uh, to help us do so, Jay, we have an entirely rookie roundtable. This is this is excellent. Everybody's up for the now. We've got a whole new rookie of the year class to go with this with this group here. Um, Very cool. I neglected though. I think I think I know where one person is. So, um, Jason Longshore, are you in Atlanta? Yes. I am in Atlanta. Okay, yes. good. That's the only. I think. Okay, I think I know. Now I'm. Now I'm thinking back. I think I know where a second person is. So then, so we'll get, welcome, Jason. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Um, when did you first get into REM? So I was growing up in the Atlanta area uh, through the '80s, and I first heard of REM around stand and green because I was okay. in elementary school stand was everywhere. Sure. I didn't really know enough to have musical tastes at that point yet. So I heard it. It was on the pop radio that that's what I knew. Uh, losing my religion hit huge and we'd moved to Kentucky by that point. And I knew that REM was a Georgia band and started to get into music hardcore, but, by that time and I was the the kind of fan at that point who when I'd find a band that I liked I wanted to find everything about them and learn everything about them so I got into them right at that time as they were you know breaking in the 90s so it okay. was kind of a unique perspective going back to listen to the 80s stuff excellent Josh Venable I know where you're at you're in Tulsa right I am in Tulsa Oklahoma yes welcome uh thank you What's your backstory with REM? Did, was it was it green or was it earlier than that? It was right before green. Um, so when Document came out, uh, they one I love and it's the end of the world as we know it. Were both kind of played on MTV and pop radio in the small Louisiana town that I lived in. But Green was the one. I was in middle school, and it was Stand, and that's what I think a lot of men of a certain age kind of got into REM with. And, uh, yeah, so it was green in 88. I'll never forget seeing the stand video on MTV. And it felt like the next day my, my room was completely plastered in 
pictures of the four of them. I'm getting concerned that you have both said that you were like in middle school when when Green was was out. Cause I Does was that mean that you're way older than us or way high, younger than high us? High school. I was in high school in that. So probably a couple years on, on both of you. Uh, <laughs> J2. Don't lie, J. You're an old man, too. I, I won't lie. I'm an old man. You're an old man. <laughs> Fine. You don't have to remind me. Yeah, I, know, I, know. I know. I know. Finally, helping us complete this uh, this round table, uh, Mr. Kevin Schwitters. Now, Kevin, I don't know where you're from. Where are you from? Where are you at? Where are you sitting? I, I am from Rockford, Illinois, and that's where I currently am as well. That's right. Rockford. I saw that, and I I didn't write it down because I'm lazy when it comes <laughs> to doing my job. Um, so what is your backstory with Ariam? When did you get into them? Well, it sounds like I'm probably the youngest then. I was in elementary school when Green came out. Uh, st- seeing Stan on MTV, I didn't have MTV at my house, but when I first, I think I went on vacation and watched a bunch of MTV and Stan was one of the videos that was in constant rotation and I watched it constantly. And uh, I, I would say at that time though, I wasn't a super big fan of music. I didn't go out and buy records or anything like that. Uh, losing my religion was was something that when I heard that, I knew was really special. But I, I, I still feel like I was kind of a child at the time. Uh, Automatic for the People would be when I went out and bought the record and I was a full-blown teenager at that point. So uh, I'd say Automatic for the People was really when I became a, a huge fan, although I was very aware of them before that. Okay. Um, Jay, you mentioned we've never really talked about REM on the podcast as far as like d- devoting an, a- an episode. I mean, they've come up in conversation, but as far as devoting an episode to them what's your history did you you know get any records or was this just a band that you would listen to or hear on the radio or an mtv yeah i i I don't never bought an rem record but obviously i'm very well aware of the singles as anybody who was watching mtv at the time listening to radio at the time um i actually remember um so when alternative music kind of broke started to break and probably 89 90 this was pretty early in the process like rem jane's addiction that sort of like uh first wave i remember uh, there was a radio station in cleveland that did this little gimmick where they went just flipped their format without announcing it and they played rem's end of the world as we know it for 24 hours (laughs) and everybody's like what the f is going on and then ended up they named the station the end and they were like an alternate the first like alternative format radio station that i ever remember so they kind of did that with with that song and that was sort of the signature of like what they were going to be about and um so that was one of the big first other than the videos that was like one of the other big memories i had early on uh, about this band and just like i guess how significant they were i, I like you i well i did buy cds in the 90s usually used like monster and and new adventures and and up and I think I went back and got automatic for the people and some of the '80s stuff as well. But I didn't. I wasn't like always on top of what they were doing right at that time. I was always like a little behind because they were not yeah. always front of mind. But I definitely recognized them as being. You mentioned like Jane's addiction, but that like '89, '90, yeah. '91 period before Nirvana breaks, before Pearl Jam, yeah. before all that stuff. Like Jane's addiction and uh, Faith No More. 
and they were these were these weird bands that were getting onto MTV, and you were seeing like the video for Been Caught Stealing, and yep. um, uh, what's the uh, Epic from Faith No More, and and just sort of like what is this stuff? And that I think I kind of put Living Color in that vein as well. Sure, yep. Cult of Personality, because that was even though they were like a hard rock band, there was something much more going on with that yep. band than just that. So this is an interesting period. Um, let's get into Out of Time, because when I was looking back at the singles on Green versus the singles on Out of Time, and and also just the success, you know, uh, Green is a double platinum album, Out of Time is quadruple platinum, and, and across, the, across the world is a much better selling record. So let's get into that record um, I'm going to start with where we ended. Kevin, you said that you got into them. The Automatic for the People was the uh, record that you got into. Um, looking back now, going back to Out of Time, what strikes you about that record that maybe you didn't realize back or you didn't pick up on back in the 90s that uh, you know makes that record successful? Well, I, I, I think it's interesting that I was getting into them just as their style was changing very much and of course back by the time i was in college you know murmur and reckoning those are my favorite albums ever uh but uh when i hear out of time now i i, I think about the, the transition that they went through they stopped touring uh peter buck got sick of playing guitar and and wanted to play mandolin and they wanted to do more acoustic instruments and more experimenting I think every album from Green on, Michael Stipe was trying to be a little more out front as far as his lyrics and a little more straightforward. He was trying to kind of grow and change what he was known for, which was just sort of cryptic lyrics and not as audible, you know, recordings of his voice. So this was a record that was really changing them. Uh, I, I think overall, I don't, I think this record is a little more all over the place than, than, you know, the following records, like the, the hits are really, really good. There's some songs on here I like better than others, though. Uh, also, Mike Mills sings a couple of songs on here, which is, is that I think this is the only record he sings more than one, if I'm not, not mistaken. Interesting. I want to throw it to Josh. Uh, he mentioned about some of the changes in the instrumentation, and you mentioned about Green sort of being, you know, one of the key albums and in getting into them. Was it obvious when you picked up the record the first time they're like oh there's a lot of mandolin on this record and and organ and stuff that maybe they only used as a you know a little bit here but now these are becoming front and center um instruments did did the change up throw you for a loop at first or were you on board when you first heard out of time versus hearing green i was a hundred percent on board i was a thousand percent on board um, you said, what was it that made this record so different or, or so special or made it such a big success? I mean, you could say it in three words. I mean, losing my religion. It was, it was unlike anything that was on MTV ad nauseum at the time. Um, having one of, quote unquote, our band be on MTV as much as it was. I was very lucky in that in that I lived in Dallas at the time in 91 and so we had an alternative radio station there that I ended up being the program director of many years later and 
so we were hearing REM on the radio all the time already. The station signed on in 89. And so we were already hearing REM all the time. Radio Free Europe was one of the first songs that was ever played on that station. And so now with something like Out of Time, I mean, it just, uh, I, I hate the hyperbole type you know, phrases, but it, it, it did. It exploded. It was unlike anything for one of our bands to be as big as they were. Because you mentioned Jane's Addiction or, or Faith No More or whoever, that when alternatives started to break in the late 80s, really started to break into the mainstream in the late 80s and early 90s, we had these bands that could carry big shows or would get played sometimes on Top 40 radio or whatever, but REM were everywhere. I mean, everywhere at the time. That MTV Unplugged that they did around the time of, uh, of Out of Time is still one of my favorite REM memories. And the singles on that record from Radio Song to Losing My Religion, Near Wild Heaven, Shiny Happy People, all of them were different as well. They were different from each other. And they don't all sound like they're on the same record. I think that Kevin said right before this that there are definitely songs that are better than others on this record. Um, and it is kind of all over the map. I mean, starting with a song with KRS one on it, um, going right into losing my religion. And then there's weird songs on there that kind of don't fit, but sort of cohesively keep the record together, like low or end game or belong. And the Mike Mills stuff is super strong on here. And I think that a lot of people remember that this album also has some of the best album tracks, I think out of any of them with country feedback and half world away. But I mean, it was this record you know, that got them on Sesame Street, for Pete's sake, shiny, happy monsters, you know, I mean, <laughs> they put out one of, I think one of the worst singles that a great band could possibly put out. But it was also very of its time. You know, this is early 90s. This is everybody. Let's all get along. And this is Earth Day. And this is whatever. It's also safe sex, which we're going to go into on monster with bang and blame later on. But the they were always very of their time and singing about things or the packaging was of its time or whatever. We have to make biodegradable this and, and you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it was very, very of its time in 1991. We've been through fake breakdown, self-hurt, plastics, collections, self-help, self-pain, ass, psychics, fuck all. Was central, I had control, I lost my head. I need this, I need this. Paperweight, junk garage, winter rain, a honey pot, crazy, all the lovers have been tagged. And uh, you mentioned about um, them doing the Unplugged. That was one of the few times people saw them live because they didn't tour this record, nor did they tour the next record, Automatic for the People. Right, it wasn't until Monster that they toured. Which is after crazy. After Green, because the Green World Tour just you know, took so much out of them. Right. 
And I think at the time, I think I remember reading something from Buck or Stipe that they didn't know how they were going to do all of the out of time songs live yet, that they made a record without thinking about for the first time in a really long time, how they were going to do these songs in front of a stadium because they were an arena because they were an arena band at that point for the first time really ever. Jason, let me ask you, you also had a similar experience. Green was sort of the band that, or the, the album that got you into this record. When you heard songs that, as disparate as losing my religion versus shiny, happy people um, on the record, was there any sort of like, what's going on here? Or did you have a similar reaction with Josh where you were, like on board right away it actually took me a while i was i wasn't as plugged into like alternative music at this point i was just really starting to get into it probably in the the middle of this album's life cycle and it was radio song for me that immediately grabbed my attention because i've always been kind of musically schizophrenic and, and i've loved hip-hop and i've i've always been into hip-hop r&b that type of stuff and to hear rem who i knew from stand and you know had heard losing my religion everywhere and had heard shiny happy people to hear krs1 on it i was like what is going on here and then started to dig into the record and i think something that's always struck me about REM as a whole, but especially this record is, you know, you mentioned earlier that it's, it felt like they were of that time, but they also felt out of place in in a lot of ways to me in terms of, you know, we've talked about Faith No More, we've talked about Living Color, Jane's Addiction. REM doesn't really sound like any of that. And, And especially this record, this record sounds the least like any of that. And, but they were, very important in bringing alternative music to the mainstream and kind of changing it. They always felt like they didn't necessarily fit with where things were musically at that time. They were a little ahead of the curve in some ways and things started to follow them. This record going back and listening to it uh, a good bit lately, it feels very disjointed. There's some tracks that I absolutely love and, and some that I kind of, go in and out of loving me and honey is one that jumps out to me for that. Sometimes there's a live version that doesn't have Kate Pearson on it. Uh, that Mike Mills is singing the backup that I just love from the 40 watt, 40 watt club in Athens. But it's, it's a record that is probably my least favorite of the nineties albums. Interesting. You know, you guys have me thinking about. We just did an episode on U two, uh, the the War album for our eighties uh, series, and it made me think about whether really the only contemporaries at this time for REM were like a band like U two, that was a stadium band that also were sort of reinventing themselves at the beginning of the nineties with Octoon Baby versus what they had done at the end of the eighties with Red on Hum and and the Joshua Tree and Unforgettable Fire. And uh, if if there's no there's not a huge like musical crossover, but just in terms of what was going on with the band, in terms of trying out new things and uh, working with new people, so that was just that just occurred to me. Um, I think there's an attitude crossover, definitely. I think they both kind of were of the same place and how they approached what they did. It also when you mentioned the uh, KRS One appearing. 
it reminded me that um, Chuck D appears on a Sonic Youth song around this time as well. And it's just, it's just odd that That's like right. uh, that indie rock bands at this time or, or alternative rock bands were like, let's have a guest hip hop artist on one of our songs just to test the water right before we get into rap rock in the in the 90s and the Judgment <laughs> Night soundtrack and all that stuff. So that was I, I I didn't remember that he was on that song. I was like, oh, yeah, when I was listening to this again this week. Um, and then, you know, I mentioned how they did album after album in the 80s. They followed this up a year later with Automatic for the People. I mentioned that they didn't tour this record as well, but I was reading that um, Peter Buck said he actually wanted to make a, a louder record with Automatic. That was intent going into Automatic with, for the People. wanted to make a rock record, but... Um, they ended up not making a rock record. They ended up making Automatic for the People. And um, I'm curious what you guys think of, uh, you know, this is, again, another record that has, like, huge singles that have been played to death in some cases um, that, you know, people know. Uh, everybody hurts. Man on the Moon. I mean, I still hear Man on the Moon. My God, that's like played on. Man on the Moon is played on like the oldie station that plays like Super Tramp and uh, and Fog Hat. And I don't. I, I'm like, how does this belong in here? But apparently, that's that's because uh, it was in a movie. I guess it, it's a uh, in the same category ro- rotation wise. So going back and listening to this record. Um, uh, Jason, I'll start with you because you mentioned about that record not being as cohesive, uh, meaning out of time. Is do you find Automatic for the People a more cohesive record? I do, and this is the album that I really fell in love with REM on. I I picked this up the day it came out. Um, I'd already bought it then after you know, catching on at the end of the out of time cycle and going back and listening to all the old stuff. I was ready for this record to came out to come out and. I, I wore it out when when I first bought it. I just loved it. The drive video was just really cool at that time. A little dark, a little mysterious, but just super cool. Um, I, I loved this record for being something that I'd never really heard before. Like this this kind of style that was, you know, it was heavy in in a lot of ways, lyrically especially. And you know, for me, I was. Uh, I think just starting high school when Automatic came out. So it was kind of the right time for me. Um, I love the singles. I love the way this album concludes. It's probably my favorite final three songs on any record ever. Uh, Find the River is definitely in my top five REM songs of all time. And I like that it 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 is more coherent, but you do have some things that that change it up a little bit. Uh, Sidewinder sleeps tonight is just a crazy, silly, fun, poppy song, and Ignore Land is is big and bombastic. So it's coherent, but it's very well paced. And for me, it's it's my favorite REM album. Interesting, um, Josh. Where does uh, Automatic? for the people land for you in terms of their nineties output. And, and what was your reception to this record on the heels of out of time? I like the record quite a bit. Um, much more. So this is in my opinion, the last great, you know, phenomenal REM album. 
Uh, there's definitely gems on some of the other stuff in the mid to late 90s and then into the 2000s, but this is the last perfect R.E.M. album. Um, the thing that I'll always remember about this record is hearing Drive for the first time and thinking that they were so big at this point that they could release that as a first single because they knew that they could. And this is the beginning of R.E.M., I think of a lot of things in radio terms because of my job, but I think of them saying, we're this big, so we're going to put this out, and if radio wants to play it, then sure. I mean, this is coming off of the the album with Losing My Religion on it, and they put out a song like Drive that does not have an overly loud chorus. It doesn't have, it's not super sing-alongable. It's just a weird choice for a first single and then you look at the first singles that they put out from here on out and it was always again that we're rem and we can do whatever we want pearl jam followed that after the second record that they always used to put out the weirdest song that they could for the first single just because they could and they wanted to see if radio would play it maybe i ride maybe you walk maybe i try to get off Shake a leg Maybe you're crazy cohesive it really is it sounds like an album it doesn't sound like a collection of songs uh sidewinder is obviously the exception for that that it sounds kind of bizarre and it's you know he's kind of messing around at one point you can hear stifle laugh in it and i think that we all kind of laughed at the same time when we were listening to the lyrics and i think everybody laughs along with him but yes to to quote the earlier guest i mean the way that it ends with man on the moon night swimming and find the river like it's it's pretty tough to find something that strong. I think Night Swimming is probably in my top 10 favorite R.E.M. songs. It's pretty perfect. And the great thing about Everybody Hurts on this record is it's kind of like Losing My Religion. It's one of those that you've heard a million times in your life. And if you give it if you give it your full attention every time you hear it, you really are blown away by what a perfect pop record it is. Kevin, where does this fall for you in the in the nineties? I was in eighth grade when when uh, Automatic for the People came out, and this was right when my parents got MTV. Drive was one of the first videos I ever saw on MTV at my house, and uh, this was a huge moment. By this time, I had Nirvana came out and sort of exploded my world, and I was discovering underground bands at a constant. You know, that was my main goal in life was to find a new band every other day and uh rem was just this giant band but they fit into that whole world and to me even at the time i remember feeling they were kind of like the elder statesmen of of the the scene that was exploding on tv and even a lot of the underground bands uh the drive video had a huge impact on me every single on this album on this album is great every 
non-single on this album is great. I think this is pretty much a perfect album. Uh, I have a lot of friends who are slightly older than me who kind of got turned off of R.E.M. during Out of Time. And uh, they always cite Everybody Hurts as this, you know, this <laughs> terrible crime against music. And I, I just have a very opposite perspective on that. I feel like R.E.M. was one of the biggest bands in the world. And they wrote this song that was an attempt to be very universal, very simple, very straightforward. I think people, no matter what kind of music you like, can appreciate that song and connect with it and understand it. And uh, as far as bands that are on that level, it's easy to criticize a band who's one of the biggest bands in the world and, and trying to write to a more general audience. But R.E.M. was pretty damn good at it. They, they maintained their integrity. They constantly continued to experiment. And they also remained weird and idiosyncratic. They didn't. They never watered down their sound or, or, or got embarrassing to me. Uh, and and this album is, I think, a much better version of the more quiet acoustic thing that they started on at a time. It's interesting about everybody hurts, Jay. I don't know if you had this feeling revisiting these records or not, but I I did not like that song the first time I heard it. I was yeah. I was very much like because uh, I was listening to a lot of very loud music at that time, you know, in 1992, and just a lot of you know grunge and and heavier st- helmet and and you know that kind of stuff. So like hearing that song, I was like, what? No man, that sucks. Because you know I didn't have a very wide musical palette at that point, and now I hear it and I'm like, I can't believe how this song was in a single. Like it is crazy that this song was a single because it's so it would never get on the radio today. It would have to have like a whole bunch of electronic beats and, and it, there'd have to be like the vocals would have to be through a vocoder or something or, or, you know, it have to, you know, it just wouldn't work. And I really appreciate the craft now of that song. And I was looking it up and John Paul Jones from Led Zeppelin actually did, um, arranged the strings for a lot of the songs on this record. And um, I'm guessing it might have been for this album as well. Uh, But I have a much better appreciation now than I did when I was a 20-something hearing that song and not getting what it was trying to do. I don't know if you've come around to it or not at all. But uh, that's my my evolution on that song. Yeah, I found revisiting it that I've come around, I've come around to a lot of this stuff. I mean, uh, the singles were, especially on these two first records we're covering here, the singles were played pretty heavy. I mean, to the point where you almost, you know, as a casual listener, would start to tone them out because it was just right so much. Um, so I think that's that that everybody hurts fell in that category for me. Um, I always was. A, like drive though i just felt like that was just such a different turn for them mm-hmm. um it actually reminds me quite a bit of pink floyd which is not a band that you would think that this band would sound like but i think there's a lot of similarities in that particular song and that band um so i always like that uh aspect of the band and um kind of tuned me into some of the darker um and more somber stuff that they could do as opposed to you know what i was familiar with about a time with the singles which tended to be you know, a couple of them were more on the like pop side. And if you go back to Green with Stand, um, so I always appreciated the the darker side of this band and revisiting the the catalog. That was the stuff that kind of stood out to me. 
It's funny you mentioned Drive and, and Everybody Hurts Together. I, I don't know if everybody remembers the MTV Video Music Awards performance where they did both. And yep. it started with Everybody Hurts, and it was a great, you know, faithful performance of the song. It sounded similar to the album track, super powerful. And then they went into that funk version of Drive that they were doing live, um, and they brought it into the Monster Tour later. But you know, they they weren't touring at this time. I had just really fallen in love with them, and this was the first time, you know, after that unplugged performance, to see them live in any setting. And I remember being so jazzed up to see it. And when they went into that version of Drive, I lost my mind because I didn't expect it at all. Yeah, the first time I remember hearing the live, the electric version of Drive was when I think it was on a Greenpeace comp. Yeah. And uh, and it, it sounded, you know, it was recorded at 40 Watt Club and it was all recorded using solar energy or whatever. And I remember thinking, man, I what a different record this would have been had it started with a version like that of Drive, uh, because they're two totally different things, the electric version and the acoustic version. I wonder if that was a, you know, what was in, I mentioned about Peter Buck wanting to do a rock record, is that was sort of pushing the, the, the live stuff with regards to that performance and them wanting to get back on the road. I guess um, there was some tensions within the band with regards to when they were making monster that at some point they even considered breaking up that they were, they were all sort of, they couldn't even be in the studio together while they were, they were just show up at different times and record parts. And they're having, they ended up recording it at like four different studios. And it seemed like there was tension trying to figure out how the song was supposed to, or how the album was going to go. And it's strange because I, you know, I don't know about you guys, but um, I listened to that record and it sounds, and I haven't listened to the to the new version that came out. I only have I've only listened to the, the original album that came out. It still sounds so wild to me, like such a sh- absolute shot across the bow in terms of like what they just did with Out of Time and Automatic for the People, and then hearing Monster, it's like it, this is either genius or they're trying to destroy their career with with this album. It. <laughs> And listening back to it now, I I mean I get, you know, this wasn't exactly like premed not not, not premeditated. It wasn't like you could predict that this was going to happen, but you can sort of hear touches here and there in certain songs. Josh, let me start with you. What was your initial impressions upon hearing Monster for the first time back in '94? That Peter Buck found a tremolo and didn't stop using it. For the record, <laughs> it felt like and a fuzz pedal. Um, uh, yeah. Um, well, just real fast to touch on one thing that you just said of them putting out Monster after something like Out of Time and Automatic to go back to something that you were saying earlier about U2. I think it can be kind of compared to that as well. That there's that famous quote from Bono about chopping down the Joshua Tree, and that's kind of the sound of Octung that when Octung came out, it was in direct opposition to Rattle and Hum and the Joshua Tree before that. It sounded completely different. When they released The Fly at the beginning, there were people going, this isn't my U2, not on my watch. And then when you heard What's Frequency Kenneth for the first time, it sounded completely different. This is not the REM that we had come to know and love from the past two records. 
And this, to me, is definitely not my favorite REM record by by leaps and bounds, but it's one of the most interesting times in this band's career. Um, I don't know if anybody else remembers, but when the video first came out for What's Frequency Kenneth, there were rumors all over the place that Michael Stipe had gotten AIDS. Do you remember that? Because he was like so ultra skinny, and this is the first time that we really saw the shaved head, and then this is right around the time, or during this album cycle, is when Bill has the aneurysm, when the fate of Bill and the band starts to become kind of tenuous. Uh, Stipe gets the hernia and has to have surgery for that. It's right after this that their manager leaves under like sexual harassment, you know, uh, yeah. out of that. Um, but I mean, it's, it's one thing after the next on this record that makes it a very interesting to me time in this band's career. Um, the singles on this record, I think are very weird. Uh, what's frequency Kenneth with the whole Dan Rather story that leads up to it, and tongue is all sung in falsetto, and bang and blame is this like very uber hypersexual song, and strange currencies is this nice you know ballad, and then the album tracks for like Let Me In, the, his friendship with Cobain had been blossoming up until that point, and supposedly. Cobain was going to come out and they were going to do this like weird run through of the next Nirvana record. And they had become like, I don't know, best friends or whatever at this point. I mean, it, it's, it's very, very entertaining to me to remember this time in REM's history. But yeah, I remember more than anything else. I'll always remember seeing the video for what's frequency Kenneth when it first came out and being shocked that this was, the same REM that had put out Drive and Man on the Moon and all of Out of Time. You know, this is not the band that put out Out of Time. It's a completely different band that wanted to do something totally different. And that totally different was just play tremolo guitar on every single song. <laughs> it felt like. <laughs> I think there's three. I mean, because really, when you listen to What's the Frequency Kenneth and then you listen to Crush with Eyeliner, it's like a slowed down What's the Frequency Kenneth. It's like mix them up a little bit. Don't put the two tremolo songs that sound exactly the same right next to each other. I, I have yeah, a bit of trivia about that. There is no tremolo on What's the Frequency Kenneth. It's, you know what I mean. <laughs> you know what it's I mean. It's that guitar trick where you where you flick the um, up the uh, the toggle switch. Right. Jay, you know what I'm talking you about, right? You know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. But there is tremolo on the other also, side. Also, I... Also, I think it's really weird that Star 69 kind of holds up as a rock song, even though someone of a this generation that's coming up, my daughter, for example, would have absolutely no idea what Star 69 means. A very weird, dated song at yep. this point. Comment from um, Ian Wobble. So I still believe Monster is very underrated, and it's and it 
um, a reason it's not so popular is because it does not sound like out of time and automatic for the people, which is great in my opinion. Um, and he saw the first, the band's first infamous comeback show in Perth and thought they were great. So Ian's a big fan of this record. Who else is a big fan? Kevin, Jason, are you big fans of this record? Yeah, I am. I think that the 25th anniversary stuff, it kind of brought me back around to it. It's, it is a really interesting listen. The, I mean, I don't know what you want to call it because Scott lit like really took all that tremolo stuff out and some songs sound incredibly different without it. Uh, what's the frequency? Kenneth sounds really different without the, the toggle thing going on. It it's, it just has a completely different feel to it. Let me in sounds really different on there. And that's one that, you know, today as we record this, it's it's a uh, Kurt Cobain's birthday, and that song really hit me because I was a, a big Nirvana fan, and that was the first like celebrity death that affected me. So you know, when my favorite band REM is doing a song about it, that was a a really big moment. When I got the chance to see the band live on that tour uh, in Atlanta, the last show of the tour. That was the song that really got to me. And, you know, this album had a lot more depth to it than I realized at the time. I think as I've, I listen to it again, like every time I notice kind of different things, there's some really weird songs on it. You mentioned Bang and Blame earlier. King of Comedy. It's a weird song. Um, Agreed. I Don't Sleep, I Dream is a, a weird song. Uh, you is one that gets left out a, a lot when you talk about REM, but it's it's a great one. And Circus Envy is one they started playing again. You know, some of their last tours, they they brought that song back, and that was another really good one. It's a really underrated album, in my opinion. It's it's one that I think takes a lot of heat because they were the biggest band in the world at this time. You know, the U2 comparison is really apt because they kind of took that that label over for a year or so when monster came out and the, the monster world tour. And I think there was a lot of backlash because it was such a different record, but the more I listen to it now, the more I really love it. I also think it's really strange that the way that Stipe was writing lyrics at this point about the being in character and trying to write different songs for different characters I, I still, when I go back and listen to it, it's very interesting to me. Kevin, did you say that uh, New Adventures was, not New Adventures, sorry, Automatic was your favorite uh, of this era? Absolutely, yeah. So uh, how does Monster follow up for you then? I have—I guess I have kind of complicated feelings about Monster. When it came out in 1995, I was completely enthralled with the band. Uh, Let Me In being about Kurt Cobain and Thurston Moore singing on Crush With Eyeliner. Uh, this whole era was really important to me and, and, and everything it was part of was really important. But I have to say, when it came out, the album itself didn't do that much for, for me. Uh, so there's some great songs on here, Strange Currencies and What's a Frequency, Kenneth. and uh, Of course, great. But uh, overall, just the production and the way that it felt and just... I feel like everybody bought this album and was sort of mediocre on half of it but the the new version that came out i have completely come around on it just the the, the different production that they that scott lit did the different 
uh, mixing tricks that he did, taking out a lot of things, putting things in, turning up the vocals and let me in. It's like a completely different song. I was kind of disappointed when I learned that was about Kurt Cobain and then I, you can't really hear the vocals all that well and I never found that song all that interesting. The new version of it, the first time I heard it, I was in tears. Uh, I, I think overall the album is a lot more interesting than I gave it credit for and I don't know if it was... I, I don't know exactly why, but for, for years I considered this probably the worst R.E.M. album. Uh, despite the fact that during this time I was very interested in them. They were very popular. Uh, the Monster Tour was, I think, their biggest tour. Uh, I was in high school at the time, and everybody was you know, very much into them. But uh, I think I was wrong. I think the new production has, has kind of led me back to the album and rediscovering all the different songs that I'd kind of overlooked. The one thing I will say is the taking out that guitar hook at the, in the chorus of What's the Frequency, Kenneth? Uh, it's heartbreaking. That, that part really belongs there. The song isn't the same without it, but almost every other choice that Scott Litt uh, made to, to change it up, I think, was a really good one. And, and if you get a chance to hear that, the new version, absolutely do. Jay, did you check out the new version, or are you uh, only have you only heard the, the original? I've only heard the original. Um, I'm interested to listen to the to the um, to the new version, though. Um, you know, I like this record. Uh, I think, like, let me in. This version, at least, it reminds me of Catherine Wheel, which is not a band again that I would ever compare REM to. But you know, yeah, the vocals kind of drown in it in the mix, but that's kind of the aesthetic of the shoegaze kind of thing, and that's what I got out of the song more than um, with this particular approach. And I, I appreciate that. I love the fuzzy guitars. The weird moments to me work pretty well. Um, I just like it sounds um, it sounds pure, more honest. Like it just sounds like they got together and wrote some songs and less like studio oriented. You know, the the previous two records we talked about sound more constructed in a studio and less like band gets together and just write some songs. So this felt to me like, you know, just like a more honest rock oriented record. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I can tell I you. Wanna, f- Go ahead. I wanted to mention real quick, too. You guys just did a, a podcast about a very REM influenced band called Idlewild. Yes. <laughs> if you get a chance to listen to Bang and Blame back-to-back with the song Love Steals Us from Loneliness by Idlewild. Huge influence on that song, and I think that was a fairly big hit for Idlewild in, in the UK. Oh, yeah. But, uh, hmm. Huge influence on that song with Bang and Blame, I think. Yeah, now that you say that, I can hear that in my head. <laughs> um, that's also when I kind of started losing interest in Idlewild because I love those uh, second, third records. Um, but that seemed like a very calculated single for them. And a little less edgy than what the previous 100 Broken Windows and the remote part were. Um, I was going to say, Jay, you mentioned about recording. What's interesting is, you know, in 96, Joshua mentioned all the stuff that went down on the Monster Tour, during the Monster Tour, and then then with management and stuff. Um, In 96 is when they signed their huge deal with Warner Brothers which at the time was the most money any band had ever gotten. The estimates are between like 60 and 80 million for their deal. 
And while they were touring Monster, they started recording the next album, New Adventures in Hi-Fi, which from what I was reading, they had not done before. Um, I guess when they had Radiohead out with them, they saw that Radiohead was doing that. So they started recording basic tracks, uh, which is why there are a number of additional folks that are on New Adventures um, that were in their live band. Hmm. So because they had those recordings to start with. And so people like Nathan December, who was a live guitarist and um, uh, who else was in that touring? Uh, Scott McConaughey. Uh, he's yeah, pl- Scott he's from yeah. Yep, he's on it, and um, and then of course there's the guest spot from from Patty Smith, and so oh Andy Carlson, um, he's on the record as well. Um, so a lot of those songs got their start while they were just out on the road. For I'm sure that was a long touring cycle for that um, that band, or you know that and that album. So they actually, you can see where those songs were recorded based on, I guess there's quite a lot of Wikipedia notes. So you can see like, oh, this song was written at this particular tour stop or, or the, the basic of it. And then they went back into the studio to finish up the songs. Um, I guess at Bad Animals up in Seattle, the uh, story studio that a lot of people go to. Um, so... This is where I think I started scratching my head a little bit with REM um, because I was on board with Automatic and then Monster. And then this came out and I was like, hmm, this is strange. I was not expecting this record. I don't know how to place this record. Um, So let me throw it out to you guys. Did anybody else feel a little bit confused with New Adventures? Or were you like, yeah, I'm ready for a 65 minute long album with drum machines and <laughs> oddball uh songs that uh I've never heard before. Um Josh, I'll start with you. Where did, how did you react when you heard New Adventures? Um I was doing I was doing a Sunday night specialty show on the edge in Dallas at this point and it's kind of what I was saying earlier it's the first single that comes out is Ebo the letter which is five and a half minutes and does not sound like a radio single in the least this is also I mean this is after we had just had all of these extremely radio friendly things off of Monster and then the first thing that they give you is a song with background from Patti Smith and it's called Ebo the letter 99.9% of people on the planet had no idea what an Ebo was and didn't know that the song was going to be about River Phoenix, and I mean, just one thing after the next. And so it, I thought it was a very odd, again, choice for a first single. Um, but the other singles on the record, like How the West Was One and Where It Got Us, another weird choice for a single overseas. But then you have Electrolyte and Bittersweet Me that are classic, perfect four-minute pop song REMs. Um, as a record, as a as a full, cohesive record, I think that it works as an album, but it's not one that I go back and listen to all the time. I think as far as album tracks go on it, Undertow is probably my favorite one on here. Wake Up Bomb, I think is good. It always sounds good live. I look good in my dream, getting no sleep, take a leap longevity. I get high my attitude, latitude, 1973. I'm in 
super sing-alongable for me. Um, and that's something that I always look forward to. And this does not have a lot of, I'm going to drive down the, the highway with my windows down, just blaring, insert whatever here, Ebo the letter. It's not going to happen. So right. it's a fine record. It just don't, it's not one that I will ever really decide to put on while I'm cleaning the house or whatever. It's just not that kind of album. Uh, Jason, what about you? Where does this sit in the uh, in the '90s output? It's a weird one. I think it's a hard one to define because I, I'm I'm with Josh on it. Like, there's some songs here that I really really like. Uh, Wake Up Bomb was another like weird MTV VMA thing where they they did Wake Up Bomb before it came out. Um, it was before I saw them live where they were starting to play some of these songs, especially. You know, they they finished the monster tour in Atlanta with three shows. I saw the last one, and and if I remember right, there were four songs from this record that they played that night, and they'd played a few others in in the in the tour beforehand. So, like Wake Up Bomb, I love uh, so fast, so numb is one that you know, when I just make random mixes of REM songs, that one ends up getting in there a lot. Uh, just a good rock song that I enjoy. Uh, Electrolytes, one of my favorites. The two that are the weirdest that I kind of have love hate relationships with, Be Mine is is one that I remember reading a description of it. I think when the album came out, that if they had wanted to record this in a way to make a monster hit, like it, it could have been the song of the year if they'd wanted to. I mean, it's just a it, it could be a very sappy love song and they record it in such a weird strange way that it's almost like they don't want you to like it it's it's a really weird one uh leave is a song that i'd love and it's a seven minute something i I don't know what to call it because it starts with that siren sound that is just bizarre and then it goes all over the place but it's a really good song and it's one that I've I've heard some live versions that I think are probably cut down to around five minutes, and I love the live versions. The album version, uh, I think it's a great song, but they maybe overthought it, and that's where some of this album feels like for me. Maybe because they were messing around on tour and doing stuff, you know, in sound checks, and then taking what they had into the studio. It, it felt like a very, you know, overthought album. The, the stuff that's a little more raw, like Wake Up Bomb and, and Electrolyte and Bittersweet Me and So Fast, So Numb are the ones that I end up liking the best. You were right, by the way. On that show that you saw, the last show of the Monster Tour, they ended up playing five songs off of that record that night. That was close. Decent memory. Yeah, they, they did Undertow, Zither, Wake Up, Departure, and Binky. Yeah, Binky was one that was getting a lot of play at that time. And... That's a very, very strange song. Kevin, where does this land for you? I always really liked this album. I always thought this was an album that that left me wanting to come back to it. I feel like I never fully devoured this album. It always seemed like there was another song in there that I'd forgotten about. I feel like it's a good mix between some of the more mellow stuff on Automatic and some of the more sort of glam rock influenced stuff on monster. There's like a little bit of both in there. I don't think it's as successful as automatic. And I don't think that, uh, 
I don't I don't think that there are any you know huge amazing songs on here, but overall I think it's really solid and always leaves me wanting to come back. I remember hearing the Ebo the Letter or watching the Ebo the Letter video when it came out and being kind of intrigued by just you know this one of the biggest bands in the world and they're this video they're just kind of in a room sometimes playing sometimes not playing and there are Christmas lights and it's a cool video still I think it holds up. Uh, I'm so glad Jason that you mentioned Leave because I think that's an amazing song. But that sound is torture. I can't listen yes. to it. I, I really want Scott Litt to remix this and take that siren down because it's <laughs> it's unlistenable. I I don't I'm not sure what the decision was all about to to leave that in there. Uh, otherwise, Electrolyte's great. Bittersweet Me is really catchy. Sounds like it could be a hit to me. Uh, Ebo the letter just has a lot of mystery to it. I, I like New Test Leper a lot. I know that's one Michael Stipe is really proud of. And oh, good shout. He often cites the lyrics in that one as, as being some of his favorite that he wrote. Uh, Undertow is great. Uh, I, I think it's just, it's not as strong uh, overall, but, but it's one of those albums that I think the, the sum of it is greater than the, the pieces. Is it just too long? Is it just too hard to wrap your, you know, head around uh, an album that long? I think, I think it doesn't have that monster hit. Like it doesn't have a "What's the Frequency, Kenneth?" It doesn't have an "Everybody Hurts." It doesn't have a "Losing My Religion." It's it's a good record, but it doesn't have the defining song on it. And it was written on the road and recorded a lot of it on the road, so it, it's very all over the place. There doesn't seem to be a cohesive vision, uh, for better or worse. It just it doesn't feel like a really tight album. So what's interesting about this record is I, I'm guessing this is kind of on the heels of, of Monster and this is like the peak CD format era in the 90s. It went to number one in every major territory except the U.S. It only made it to two. It's the only R.E.M. album to do that. And, you know, I don't know if you guys had the chain. Where I used to buy my CDs back when in high school was a chain called Media Play. And yeah. yeah, every every six months or whatever, they would change the giant picture. They had a a, a book picture, a, a movie picture, and a album picture, and there were these giant posters outside of the store. And for several months, it was it was this album, and they they were just giant at the time. And this was maybe the last time they had that status. <clears throat> they probably also had a lot of uh, used copies of Monster. does anybody else remember that like every time you go use cd shopping there would be like bins and bins full of copies of monster yeah a friend of mine owned a used cd store and told me that that and pearl jam uh vitology were the two most sold back cds in his recent memory (laughs) hootie and the blowfish two of my favorites from that time hootie would be in there that's shocking but I, yeah, the REM one. There's a so there's a, a used media store near me, which the name escapes me. But they do they have DVDs and and video games and CDs, and w- they have racks of like uh, they put all the same CDs together. So there are like 500 REM monsters all in. I took pictures of it just all together, and like Paula Cole's this fire. There's like 800 of those. It's just a wall of Paula Cole CDs. It's amazing. 
and there's a few artists like that where they're they just have like hundreds of them all stacked together and you just look at it and like my god those were all like 14 15.99 and now all cds are 10 cents at this point i could make a monster mosaic yeah I've thought about that. Like, I'm just going to buy every copy of Monster, and I'm going to staple them to the wall in my basement and just have a monster wall in the basement. <laughs> can build a house out of them. Could. <laughs> I don't know how sturdy it would be. but um, So this is going to sound weird, but let's get to my favorite album from R.E.M. in the 90s. And that's oh, man. Up. Uh, that might be hyperbole. I did go through a phase where I listened to this record constantly. Um, this is on the heels of Bill Berry leaving the band. They, uh, you know, we mentioned about a lot of stuff going on with the band. And um, he said he was going to quit, but he wouldn't quit if it was going to break up the band. So they said, nope, we're going to go on as a three-piece. And he announced it in October 97, said, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, which I guess when you have a brain aneurysm and you kind of reassess your life after that, that'd probably, uh, start to take its toll. Um, so they did some recording. They got, um, uh, Scott lit brought in, uh, Pat McCarthy and then Nigel Godrich was also brought in as an assistant producer. Um, and then they brought in for drums, um, Joey Wanaker the traveling drummer who's played with lots of people. And then also I think Barrett Martin was involved. I have, I got to check the line of notes, but um, yeah, this is a, this is another departure to use that uh, term uh, for the band. So where does this lie for everyone? Were you, were you interested when you heard the first single day sleeper and, and then the follow up Lotus um, or were you like, what is going on? I don't like this new REM. Or, or were you willing to give it a shot? Uh, so I was in a weird place. Let me, let me kick one thing off real fast. The gap between New Adventures and Up. I was at the University of Georgia at that time. So I was in Athens. When Bill Berry made his announcement, the city almost stopped. I mean, it was everywhere everywhere you went people were talking about it it was a huge huge shock and front page news everywhere it's on all all local tv news everybody was talking about it there were you know people discussing it and i think bill did a lot of interviews at the time the band did a lot of interviews at the time it it was such a crazy thing to be in athens at that point and just watched the city almost like stop and was kind of in mourning for a little while, like worried about what was going to happen next. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy that I, I forget how small Athens is in comparison to like Atlanta or something where, uh, it's just a college town essentially. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a good size college town, but yeah, it's, it's close enough to Atlanta where, you know, you have a lot of Atlanta media involved, but you know, the, the city, especially like, you know, one, the people who are are not in school there are, it's pretty tight knit and everybody kind of knows one another. And the music scene even then was still like really heavily revolving around REM or people who knew REM or people who played with REM once, stuff like that. And 
this was just a catastrophic thing there for a while where nobody knew what was going to happen next to the the biggest thing in town. Well, I'm here. I'm in Columbus, Ohio, which is where Ohio State is. And I imagine if 21 Pilots lost a member, there would be a similar (laughs) sense of. uh... (laughs) Wow. Because Columbus has had no successful bands. Uh, 21 pilots besides 21 (laughs) pilots uh so unless you're really into the gods with a z so jason what did you think then when you heard up so this was the first album that i kind of experienced the athens release cycle so they had a, a huge listening party uh, I think it was at the Georgia Theater, if I remember right, uh, the night that the album was coming out. So really not much had leaked. I mean, you know, now you pretty much hear a whole album before it ever comes out. And at this point, Day Sleeper was out. I don't remember anything else even being heard at all. So listening to it at a venue and and trying to take as much in because I was completely obsessed at this point, finding bootlegs of shows from the eighties and and everything I could find I was grabbing. So I'm sitting at this venue, it's a big party and I'm trying to listen to the album and really get into it. I uh, went over to Wuxtry and, and bought the album at midnight when it came out and then went home and <laughs> stayed up all night listening to it. And it blew my mind because it's such a weird album. I love it. And it, 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 you know, it obviously reminds me of that time of, you know, being in college and, and hearing something so different from them. Uh, Walk Unafraid is one of my all time favorite songs. I, I, I don't know if the album version completely captures it like live versions do. Uh, At My Most Beautiful is just a, a song that I would have never expected REM to do. And it's, it's a, just wonderful song. so on rem and another great one i love this album um i don't know if i'd put it as, as you know my top three favorites but it's probably the one that when it came out i listened to the most i was just completely obsessed with this record for a long time kevin what about you were you obsessed I was i actually yeah i i was very obsessed when this came out i was in college uh i I think when I when the album first starts, you have three kind of odd songs in a row, maybe even four songs in a row that don't really 
feel like what you expect, but REM was always that band that seemed ahead of the curve. It was going to make you think. So I, I, I remember very much liking this. I think I heard Day Sleeper first. And at the time this came out, uh, you know, uh, the stuff I was into was more like Sunny Day Real Estate and, and, and Braid and stuff like that. Uh, and I felt, I felt like this was, I could tell that REM actually kind of got it. They were listening to things that were current at the time. And, uh, also trying to push themselves, even though when I think about it now, that doesn't make much sense. But to me, it didn't seem like a, a desperate or embarrassing attempt at using electronics. I think the reason I really like this album even to this day is because more so than the subsequent REM albums, it actually sounded like a band trying to figure out how to not have a drummer. Uh, even though there are drums on this album and men, on, on many songs, a lot of the songs you can tell that it started off as just a drum machine and sometimes it's the arrangements are a little more sparse. Uh, some of the chord progressions are really complicated on these songs. Uh, I think at my most beautiful, um, I should just as a quick story, my, my father-in-law has been playing in bands since the 1960s and is a huge Beach Boys fan, not a big REM fan, but I played him at my most beautiful uh, about 10 years after it came out and he'd never heard it. And he immediately said it was one of the best Beach Boys tribute songs he'd ever heard. Uh, so I think some of this experimenting they started to do here with Beach Boys melodies and harmonies, which they continued on the next album, which we won't talk about on this podcast, but uh, a really successful Walk Unafraid, one of my favorite songs. Uh, even the even the sort of weird, subtle three songs that that open the album, I feel like all have their purpose and it kind of makes sense to me. Uh, Hope gives writing credit to Leonard Cohen because it kind of the melody is pretty similar to Suzanne. Uh, I actually went out and bought Leonard Cohen's greatest hits when I read that because <laughs> I wasn't all that familiar with Leonard Cohen. But I know a lot of people talk about this as the the sort of disappointing not good rem album but i still to this day really like it a lot it, i could maybe convince myself otherwise certain times but overall i'd say this is my favorite post bill berry rem album okay josh where does this sit with you uh is it a is it a strong left turn or is it a uh a, a misfire my first question is, can Kevin and I branch off and start a Sunny Day Real Estate podcast? That's totally <laughs> I'm a thousand percent in on talking about Braid and Sunny Day for the rest of the night. Um, I, I think that Up is, I love that we all keep coming back to the term weird when talking about these REM records, because they do get progressively weirder starting without a time and going on. Again, with what I was saying earlier about releasing a very strange first single, you know, when you listen to the lyrics for Day Sleeper, yeah, I'm, I'm a sucker for a song about a girl. I, I am. That's what I'll always like. Not songs about the stock market and day traders and whatever. And so the first time I heard it, you kind of sit there and you go, what now? Hold on. What are, what are we talking about? Circadian rhythm. Uh, what is that? You know, I was, I was a kid. I didn't know. And there are all of these very, very strange lyrics um, to release as a first single. Um I think Hope sounds like a demo that would be a great upbeat song. It sounds like a really slow, awesome, upbeat R.E.M. song. Uh, I think Walk Unafraid is really good. I think it's one of those songs that 
had I not known it was done by REM, that I expect such a high thing from uh, the bar is set so high, I think Walk Unafraid would be even better to me. But the big standout for me on this record is always going to be at my most beautiful. I mean, it's very strange that a band this far into their career can release, in my opinion, one of the greatest moments that that band will ever do. It's it's tough to top. It's way up there with I believe. It's way 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 up there on my with South Central Rain. It's way up there with Perfect Circle or Radio Free Europe or whatever of the all time REM perfect songs. One of those songs that you wouldn't change one thing about. Um, so I do think that Up is a strange record. Um, again, what all was going on with that band at the time? Losing Bill having Jefferson Holt leave as their manager the year before this came out or two years before or whatever. So they're in a transition period. And again, they hadn't toured right before this. And so they had done these sporadic small outings. And then this comes out. And I think a lot of the time when I was listening to this, I was kind of thinking the same way that I was about some of the early 90s records. How are they going to play some of this stuff live? Um, But overall, it is easily my least favorite of the 90s records. Um, Nothing really wrong with it, per se. It's just other than At My Most Beautiful, there are no huge standouts on this. If I was making an REM Spotify, the only thing that would probably go on from this record would be At My Most Beautiful. Now back to Sunny Day Real Estate. Uh, Ironically enough, we're probably doing a Sunny Day Real Estate podcast (laughs) in like the next month. (laughs) You have my number. Yeah, we got know where number. we are. We've got your number. <laughs> yeah. They're winning in our poll. Well, we've already done one episode, uh, and now it's winning a current poll. So uh, LP2 is is going to probably be on the docket for March. Just uh, clear your Friday screen. off the Pink Records, one of my favorite songs. There you go. Um, Jay, did you um, – okay, so I'm trying to think back. We're finishing college. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking what we're listening to at the time. Did you even listen to any of this record when it came out? I remember Lotus. Um, I can probably hear bits and parts here and there. Um, revisiting it. Um, the only thing I would add that hasn't been said is that of all the records from the nineties, this one feels most like the nineties. Um, I think the others, um, are pretty timeless sounding, fairly classic, um, this, I think because of the experimentation with electronics and drum machines and some more keyboards and just some of the production choices feels like a late nineties record. Um, whereas I don't think any of the other nineties records and maybe even the eighties records, um, you'd nece- when you hear them, you don't necessarily, necessarily can say like, oh yeah, that record was released in 1987 or that re- record was released in 1991. I think this one, when I listen to it, I definitely hear a late nineties record, um, whether that's good or bad. Um, that's what was notable to me. Interesting. Like I said, I really like this record. I went through a period of like listening to it nonstop. Cause it was so weird to me. This is like, and I, I know Josh that you have an issue with Radiohead after okay computer, but to me, this is almost like REM's kid a in a way, like they just threw everything out the window and went, let's do something really different. And I really like kid a for the same reason, not much after that, but I do like the, the kid a record. And this kind of reminds me of that just in terms of attitude of 
what they were putting out. It should be noted that this was wildly unsuccessful <laughs> when it came out. It didn't even sell a million copies, which this had been a band that was a platinum record machine uh, before this. And it sold like 900,000 copies. And that's not great after you just signed a 60 to $80 million deal. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering if Warner Brothers was, was getting nervous or if they were just more interested in the catalog with that deal so i can't remember if this was the one that started it or if reveal did where they started selling more albums internationally and i think this might have been it where i think you're right. they were really becoming that worldwide band and losing the mm-hmm. audience in the u.s because i mean alternative rock had completely shifted by this point oh, away yeah. from what rm was doing but internationally they were right in step yeah, if you look at the numbers for the 2000s albums versus what was sold in the U.S. or where they charted in the U.S. and, and what they sold and then where they, where they charted and sold, they were clearly an international band at, starting in the 2000s. Like, they had been successful, like I mentioned, with with New Adventure. And then you just go down and look at those numbers and you're like, number one, number two, number one, number two, all over the world in different countries and different territories. And in the U.S., they're like, up is at three, reveals at six. Around the Sun is at 13, Accelerates at 2, but that's 2008. Um, it starts to get into the weird digital stuff, and then Collapse Into the Now is, is number 5, but that still scores number 1 in some other countries. But they didn't, that didn't even, that last album didn't even, hasn't even gone gold in the US per, per Wikipedia, which may not be up to date. I don't know where they would be at exactly, but, um, We've covered all the major records. They did also have a, a soundtrack out for the Man in the Moon movie, the Andy Kaufman movie that came out also in, in 99, uh, which is where, uh, what was the song that was released specifically for that? Was it The Great Beyond? The Great Beyond. Yeah, yeah and, I, and I think that was a huge hit in other yeah. parts of the world. So what, what you are talking about earlier, maybe it was that song too. I think that was a... Could that even been like a number one song in the UK? It was huge, apparently. I yeah, think it was. It only made it to fifty seven in the US, but in the UK made it number three. Ah, wow. So, yeah, and they had a lot of great non-album songs in the nineties. Uh, Revolution was one from the Monster era that that never made an album. I think it was on one of the Batman soundtracks. Yeah, if I remember right. Yeah, I think it's Batman. I think it's Batman Forever. Yeah, and that's a great track. Um, Agreed. What was the one from the Coneheads soundtrack? Because this was out of time era. Uh, oh, man, I'm drawing a blank. Coneheads? I don't... Hmm. Yeah, they were on the Coneheads soundtrack, which was an awful movie, but it was a, a hey song now. that actually got a it's lot of a play free around world here. Baby. There you go. It's a free world baby. Yeah, in the 90s, they had... Um a number of songs that were on soundtracks until the end of the world soundtrack had a song called fretless. Um, That's a wonderful song. I love that track. That might be my favorite non-album REM track. And that's a B side from, uh, from what era automatic. Sorry. I think it's out of time. I think it was out of time. Is it? And, and yeah. I think that if you, if you look at the, go back and listen to all the B sides from out of time, you could, 
you could make an album that was as good as Automatic for the People if if you fully yeah. fleshed out some of those B sides and resequenced the album a little bit. I think, but that's stepping back into the podcast a little bit. They did do a, a cover of a Tommy James song for the Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me soundtrack in 1999. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah, there's a couple other ones. They did um, some Jimmy Webb stuff, uh, Wichita Lineman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, they did the cover of The Lion Sleeps Tonight, too, because I think it oh, was yeah. something with Sidewinder Sleeps Tonight. They had to do it to give them some credit or make some money for the, the publishers or what have you. Oh, interesting. Um, this is the point in the show, gentlemen, where we talk about, you know, where they were heading into the two thousands. The they they would follow up this record up three years. There's a three year break, like between Green and and Out of Time, and they release Reveal in two thousand one, which had a huge single uh, with Imitation of Life. I believe that was. Um, let me see where that was. Where did that land back uh, in 2001? I was down in the in the soundtrack single section. So that U.S. number one single on AAA radio, 83 on, um, I guess, general. But it did do well in Canada and the U.K., top 10 in both. And that would follow up with... Uh, uh, around the sun in 2004 accelerate in 2008 and then collapse into now in 2011 they also had a number of uh, this is one of the, the compilation albums um well they i mean they had eponymous and dead letter office and stuff like that but the first um where was it in time the best of rem 88 to 2003 came out in 2003 and then they had the I Feel Fine, the best of the IRS years, 82 to 87, came out in 2006. Um, which, again, these are all, you know, these are charting. That, in time, <laughs> is actually more successful than uh, Up in terms of its uh, sales and, and where it charted. Um, so, I, I just want to briefly... You know, just give me your general perspective of REM in the 2000s, so we can sort of figure out how they ended the 90s. Would are there records from that era where you go back and listen to them often, or is that is the 2000s something that you don't revisit as much as the 80s and 90s? Josh, I'll start with you. Absolutely not. The 80s and 90s, I will always listen to more than the 2000s. Um, uh, I thought Supernatural Super Serious was all right. I thought it was a great single. But other than that, I mean, Around the Sun especially is fairly dreadful, in my opinion. I mean, that there's not a lot redeeming stuff uh, to me about that record. Um, I think that the 2000s are where we really get R.E.M. giving us live album after best of after rarities compilation after live album it just it seems like there's so much stuff coming out on a regular basis where if you if you collect records they were trying to put you in the poorhouse the entire time while giving you mediocre records um because i was buying all of it 
I was buying every every single thing I, I could, uh, you know, every single and seven inch and and you know deluxe edition of this and deluxe edition of that. But right. no, no, I don't go back and listen to the two thousand stuff very much at all. It's only if I'm making an REM Spotify list and I feel obligated to put something on, and then you <laughs> listen to Around the Sun, and you go, man, what am I gonna pick? I really don't want to pick any of these songs. Can I just put one more from Reckoning on? And then I usually just pick one more from Reckoning instead. <laughs> uh, Kevin, what about you? Uh, is there anything that you go back and revisit from the 2000s? You know, I, I go I go back and listen to Reveal every summer. It came out, I think, in May. And I think it came out the same day as Weezer's Green album. Uh, so it's just for context. I really like that album. It, it's a great summer album. A lot of good Beach Boys uh, harmonies and stuff on that album. After that, it's uh, there are songs I like, but overall, I don't revisit the albums a whole lot. I think Around the Sun is the one REM album that kind of deserves the the reputation as being kind of underwhelming. It it just it just really is. There's no other way to look at it. And even the band I think agrees with that. Uh, the the two albums that they did at the end of the career, Accelerate and Collapse into Now, I, I think have some really really great songs. They were sort of both billed as this like return to form rock album uh, type situation. And I don't, and to some extent that, that works, but um, I don't know. I don't go back to those albums as much as I thought I would. Uh, I really liked them when they came out, but there's also the, the out of time or, or uh, what is it? In time, in yeah. time, that best of collection that has that song bad day, which is a reworking of an older song, which is really good. And Michael Moore did a video for it and they did the whole talk show circuit playing that song and uh i really like that song and uh the recording they did of it i think is really good oh can i also jump back really fast and say that there is something from the 2000s that i absolutely love from rem and it's not a 2000 song but they finally put it out in the 2000s when vanilla sky came out the all the right things are all the all your all the right friends sorry um i think is a wonderful song and it, it shows how good that band is that they'd had that in their back pocket since, what, the early 80s, like the very beginning, beginning of the band. And then they decided to record it X amount of years later and put it out on kind of a throwaway on the Vanilla Sky soundtrack, which I thought was a wonderful song. That's probably my favorite thing from the 2000s. Well, and then we also have those two songs that they put they put out after they already broke up that are on that those two greatest hits compilations that are also pretty good songs. I think I, I can't even remember the, the name of those songs, but there are definitely two songs that came out. Is that the, which there's a bunch of, there's so many they're on. It's the, the name of the album is like part trash part. Oh, I see. That, yeah. That was the last one that they put out. That was the like double greatest hits or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, uh we all go back to where we belong. And I can't remember what the other one was. There's a couple of un- previously unreleased. A Month of Saturdays. Um, Hallelujah. It says is a previously unreleased along with We All Go Back to Where We Belong. Um, so it looks like there's three previously unreleased songs on that. It's a double album of uh, of hits. All the hits, and it does include that bad day, which is mm-hmm. it's funny because it's included on a greatest hits, and it's from a previous greatest hits. 
<laughs> it's kind of <laughs> incepting the greatest hits there. <laughs> um, Jason, what's, where do you stand on the 2000s? Anything that is memorable for you or anything that you re- go back to? Yeah, the the beginning of it, I, I kind of fell out a little bit. Um, Reveal and and Around the Sun, there's a couple songs here and there, but nothing on those albums really grabbed me like other stuff. They did tour on In Time, and in addition to all the right friends that they were starting to play at that time, and it, it, I think it was on In Time as well as Vanilla Sky, they brought back permanent vacation from their early days and were yeah. playing that. It was an unreleased track and it was on, I think most of the shows from that tour. So they were really looking back at that point a lot. And it, it felt like they didn't get back to, I, I think at least a, a, a close to level of REM quality until accelerate. And I love accelerate. That's, an album that I do still go back to from time to time. Uh, Living Well is the Best Revenge uh, usually makes a compilation for me of if I'm going to pull 20 R.E.M. songs, that one sneaks in there. Uh, it's it's good. That album's really good. And it's, you know, kind of just a straight ahead rock record. And I think they've gotten away from that. It's weird that Up is the best post bill berry album and i don't think they really knew what they were doing yet and when they tried to figure out what they were doing with reveal and and around the sun it just wasn't as good until they decided to rock again and i think they had kind of settled on bill reeflin as the the drummer by that point so he wasn't really seen as a, a member but was steady and accelerate was good um collapse into now is one that i think when it came out, it didn't really strike me too much. Uh, oh, my heart was the one that that did. But as I've went back to listen to it, there's some really good stuff there, and it, it was a good way for them to go out. Those last two albums, if they had went out after Reveal and Around the Sun, it would have been a really disappointing way to end their career. Going out with the last two, Accelerate and Collapse, and now it felt like they were strong again. It was, it was cool to see them go out that way. So we have to decide, did the band survive the nineties? A lot of stuff went on, a lot of records, a lot of things affected the band, a lot of, a lot of changes, or did the nineties chew them up and spit them out in, in a less than pleasant, uh conclusion to the decade so kevin where do you stand did they survive the 90s uh it's a kind of a hard question i i I think they survived it i think that it's it's sort of uh unquestionable that they they lost something pretty major and i i don't just mean bill barry they they went from being one of the biggest bands in the world to you know I think a band that isn't even remembered as as famous as they were, which is kind of sad. Uh, you talk about a band that really was toe-to-toe with U2 in, in terms of fame and the scope and the, the number of hits and the number of albums. And I feel like when when the 
I feel like when REM is discussed now, they're they're not really put on the same level as they actually were, and it it always seems kind of unfair to me. And uh, I think there's always room for that to change and for legends of bands to grow, but it's hard to feel bad bad about that because I think they never really did anything that I think is just totally horrible. They never they never became embarrassing or to me anyway, or started having these kind of dumb fights about things. They always maintained an integrity even throughout the two thousands that a lot of bands don't. So it's hard to feel, to feel bad about them. Maybe not surviving the nineties or at least scaling it down a little bit after the nineties, but uh, they definitely lost something. Josh, what about you? Do you think they survived the nineties? Uh, I agree with what he just said. I mean, I don't think it was the 90s that killed off R.E.M. I think they'd been doing it long enough. I think that they're also especially, well, let me rephrase. I think that Buck and Stipe are not um, the most happy-go-lucky people on the planet. And so I think that to have survived, I think, as long as they did was a testament to how good that band is and how good of friends those four cats were with each other. Um, I don't think it was the 90s that killed off R.E.M. I think it was probably Death by a Thousand Cuts with, again, getting as big as they got, uh, which a lot of bands cannot handle very well, um, wanting to branch out and do something different and having the public reject it, losing a drummer and one of your founding members and one of your best friends, losing your manager at one point. Um, so I, I don't I don't think it was the nineties per se that kind of killed off REM. I think it was just time and it was time for them to finish. All right. Jason, I'll I'll throw it to you. Are you on board with what Kevin and, and Josh say that that uh, regarding surviving or not surviving? Yeah, I think if they had ended after Around the Sun, I would say yes, that the the, the way the 90s ended for them, and it's not all just because of the 90s. It is Bill Berry leaving. It changed the way their songs came together. I mean, they've, they've talked about how you know important his songwriting contributions were, and maybe they didn't even realize it until he was gone. But they they got the conclusion to their career that I think they deserved. You know, you had the – I can't remember what year they went into the – Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I think it was 2007. It was before Accelerate. Uh, so you got that. They they had their big performance there. Uh, I was lucky enough to get to see them when they were inducted into the Georgia Music Hall of Fame uh, in a ballroom, and Bill Berry came back to play with them that night as well. And uh, it was cool to see them get that acclaim that they deserved. And then they came back with Accelerate and collapsed into now and and finished strong. So maybe it almost did. But they were able to bounce back and finish the way that I think a band of their legendary stature should. Interesting, interesting. I would. I don't know where I, I when I started this. I had no idea where it was going to go, whether they survived or not. But I'm glad we got some experts on to uh, lay it all out for us. Uh, I feel much more educated on REM. Jay, how about you? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this is a band that I think is unusual in how big they were in the 90s. I mean, they were every bit as big as Pearl Jam and Nirvana and Red Hot Chili Peppers and like all these bands that everybody knows that are synonymous with the 90s. But 
have, um, I think, largely not, um, I don't know why, but not, they don't have the legacy or the current relevance that most of those bands have for one reason or the other. I mean, for Nirvana, you could even say like, you know, Foo Fighters is kind of the extension of at least somebody from that band has continued and is still relevant now. I mean, R.E.M. is just not in the conversation anymore. Like, and no member from the band is in significant, like, making records or doing anything, you know, from a pop level notoriety. I mean, even Weezer puts out records and people go and see them. So I think just the contrast of, like, how huge they were and how quiet their legacy is now in pop culture is is pretty remarkable. Yeah, really the only... You know, things that come up is when something gets re-released, like the monster re-release yeah. or, or something like that. Um, when there's, I think they there was a recently, was it was for Record Store Day last year where they put out a live recording that had been like a bootleg for a long time. Um, I'm trying to remember, what, I don't remember what that was called. Maybe one of you guys they know. They did that. They definitely did that a few years ago. Okay. Yeah, it seems like that's how they stay in the conversation is by. You know, the re-release, the, the catalog, catalog reissues and stuff. And we, you know, we have a 90s podcast. We talk about 90s music literally every week. And this is one of those bands that I don't think you and I even bring up hardly at all. Like, and I, and I don't think it's because they're not relevant. I just think I just forget about them. And They really float in that weird in-between space. Like they had that year of 90 midway through 94 through the end of 95 where they were the biggest band in the world no question about it they had one of the biggest songs of the 90s in losing my religion and then they ended the 90s in such a weird different place than they started it and never got back to where they were it's they're such a unique band they had such a unique career that they were heavily influential, but like you said, sometimes you forget about it in a current context. Yep. All right, gentlemen, I have we have broken the uh, time barrier by a significant amount, which this band is <laughs> this band deserved it. But we um, we should wrap up here, and what I like to do is go around the virtual room and just um, have a uh, take a moment to let people know. Uh, if you'd like to, um, what you're up to, and uh, if you like, there uh, you can provide some socials, you know, the Twitter, the Facebook, Instagram, whatever, to um, where people can uh, say hi, talk about REM with you. Uh, also, we'll have a page up at Dig Me Out for all of our guests, so um, you'll need to send us headshots. You know, something in a nice eight by ten, black and white, professionally done. <laughs> Sears is fine. Uh, does Sears still exist? I don't even know if Sears still exists. Uh, <laughs> Jason, where where can people find you? What are you up to? So I'm on Twitter at Longshoe. Uh, I'm getting ready to start the fourth season of Atlanta United Soccer. I'm the color commentator for Atlanta United on ninety two nine The Game Radio here in Atlanta, and I would love to talk REM with anybody who wants to talk REM. I talk soccer all the time, so it's a lot of fun to talk about something a little different. Nice. Uh, Josh, where can people find you? What are you up to? On Twitter, it's Josh on the Edge. 
and uh, that's the name of one of the two radio stations that I run. It's the alternative radio here in Tulsa, and then I also have an all-80s station as well that is called Totally Awesome 80s in Tulsa. You can find out everything about that station at totallyawesometulsa.com. So if you like Rick Astley or you like Samantha Fox or you like R.E.M. and Bon Jovi, it's all there in one place. Um, we were talking earlier. Oh, I don't know if I said my Twitter is Josh on the edge, but we were talking earlier about Idlewild and we were talking about Scott McCoy and the minus five. So, uh, in a different life, I had a radio show in Dallas. that was called the adventure club. And on YouTube, you can go on there just a quick plug for this. But if you want to hear acoustic sessions that I recorded with Idlewild or Peter Buck and the minus five, it's all on YouTube. If you just search the adventure club, with Josh. I can tell you that Peter Buck does not like to be told that he's out of tune when you're recording acoustic sessions with him. And it was very nerve wracking. Um, <laughs> there's a whole bunch of, there's a whole bunch of Idlewild acoustic stuff on there. And, uh, minus five with Scott and Peter, they both do, uh, Barrett was in the band at that point. He was at least on tour with them at that point, And they did, um, uh, let's see, they did a Johnny Cash cover. They did all kinds of stuff. So there's a whole bunch of fun stuff on there to listen to, especially if you're an R.E.M. or, strangely enough, an Idlewild fan. I don't think anybody has talked about Idlewild this much. I don't think their parents have talked about Idlewild this much. Um, but it's nice that somebody cares about that band because there's a lot on my YouTube. We just did Excellent. an episode on Idlewild, so there you go. We're keeping the flame yeah, alive. The, the, version, the version of American English that they recorded in the studio for me is so far ahead of the album version. I, I hope that you'll like it. I hope that you think so, too. I think it's brilliant. Excellent. Looking forward to checking that out. Uh, Kevin, what are you up to, and where can people find you? I'm on Twitter at, at Kevin Schwitters, just K-E-V-I-N-S-C-H-W-I-T-T-E-R-S. I read more than I post. I don't do a ton on there but feel free to find me on there uh i i do a lot of things i i run a rock and roll music camp for kids i um i'm also in a, i'm always in bands right now i'm in a band called tell time we're working on our first album and uh yeah feel free to check that out on on twitter if you'd like as well at uh, tell time band and otherwise i just listen to music try to talk about music as much as i can and really appreciate being on the podcast i'm a huge fan Awesome. Well, thanks to all you guys. This was awesome. Uh, glad we got to spend time talking about REM with you. and our, We got educated, and hopefully our, our listeners did as well and, and came away with a lot of cool info and, and enjoyed this one. Uh, we need to thank our patrons who selected this episode. Patreon.com. You can go to a DMO Union to get there or Dig Me Out Union to get there. For as little as uh, two bucks a month, you can get stickers and join in to uh, vote in polls and different levels, get you different cool stuff in our union. And also want to remind you, if you uh, like what you heard, um, you can leave us some positive feedback over at Apple Podcasts, depending on um, if it's going to be nice or not. If it's not going to be nice, uh, just send an email to Jay. I don't, we don't need to post that on Pod, Apple Podcast. Just let them know. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. You want to get my personal email address? Yeah, so Jay's email is <laughs> his phone number. He can be reached at. Here's his cell. You can text him nasty things. Uh, that's it. 
We gotta get. We gotta. I, it's so late. It's so late here. Everybody's in the central time zone, so, and I'm in the east coast. And so late. So late. It's so, it's so late. Uh, for Jay, I'm Tim. We're out. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages as well as our merchandise store at zazzle.com. If you